Hello, and welcome to the Legal Lowdown podcast series by Barton Gilman. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Today, I'm here with Greg Vandeneichel to discuss the uncertainty surrounding the future of Title IX under the Trump administration, including how recently released but unofficial leaks of potentially new regulations by the Department of Education will impact sexual harassment and discrimination regulations in educational settings. Greg is an experienced education lawyer who routinely represents Massachusetts and Rhode Island schools, students, and families in federal and state court and before administrative agencies such as the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, and the Rhode Island Department of Education. Greg regularly drafts and provides counsel related to education policies and procedures to ensure compliance with federal and state laws. Welcome, Greg, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. So right up front, I have to say that this is clearly a political issue in addition to a legal one. In our podcast, we try to stick to legal fact and stay away from political opinion. But on this particular issue, it may be difficult to disentangle the two. There are things that politicians do that are politically charged that have an impact on the law, and we aim to make sense of that impact for our clients and our listeners. In her first major address as Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos is quoted as saying that the Title IX guidance established by the Obama administration has, quote, failed too many students. Greg, in your experience, are there students being left behind by the system? So that's a great question, but I think to really understand where she may have been coming from, uh, she being uh, Secretary DeVos there, I think we need to take a step back and talk about where what Title IX is and how we got here. Um, so Title IX was enacted in 1972 as part of um, a series of education amendments. And at its 30,000-foot level, Title IX bars sex discrimination in all educational settings. Title IX applies to any educational institution, whether it's an elementary school, a high school, secondary school, or a graduate program that receives federal funding from the Department of Education. That includes public and private schools. The, the, the key aspect is whether or not a school receives federal DOE funding. So when, when, when it was enacted, uh, most people think of Title IX when they, the first thing they think of is equal access to sports programs. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories of in the 80s and the early 90s about colleges and universities cutting men's programs to ensure that there were equal women's programs. And there was a lot of controversy over this issue where Title IX um, has become more controversial and more relevant in the legal setting is in sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual assault in school settings. Uh, the sports athletic forum for Title IX is, is no longer a hot button issue. So Title IX really requires schools to have sex discrimination policies, that is to say policies that ban sex discrimination between and among students, uh, between and among employees, and between and among the relationships between students and employees. So it's not just, it doesn't just apply to students, it also applies in the school employment context. In 2011, the Obama administration issued a what's called a Dear Colleague letter through the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education. And the Dear Colleague letter is essentially the, the guidance that the federal government issues, depending on the administration that's in charge, their interpretation of Title IX. Um, up to this date, there are no formal Title IX regulations. So the, the Obama administration took a a very broad view, for probably for the first time, of what is sexual harassment. And they defined, defined sexual harassment and interpreted under Title IX as essentially any unwanted 
sexual advance or unwanted sexual behavior. And that really opened up the possibility for more claims because it wasn't the traditional definition of sexual harassment that, that most people are familiar with in the uh, in the employment context. Um, that is to say, severe, pervasive, objectively offensive conduct um, that happens over and over again. Uh, under the Obama guidance, there could be one instance of an unwanted advance, and that could trigger a Title IX investigation, a Title IX complaint, if you will. So the 2011 Dear Colleague letter was in place until um, the Trump administration took over, and it, uh, Secretary DeVos and the Trump administration have made it clear that they want to revise the enforcement of Title IX. And while they have not yet released any regulations, uh, in 2017, they they rescinded the 2011 Dear Colleague letter and released what essentially is called a question and answer document that um, highlights their interpretation, their current interpretation and how of Title IX and how they're going to enforce it. Now, to your original question, I think where this is coming from is that the current administration believed that the pendulum had swung too far towards protecting accusers, alleged victims, and 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 providing more due process rights to to the to the victims, the the, the uh, complainants. Um, while not providing the same due process protections to the alleged perpetrators, and there are there are high profile stories that we may get into at some some point here of alleged perpetrators that um, were likely not guilty of anything, and that, that's it's not a criminal case. So guilty is the wrong word, but they they didn't violate any Title IX policies, and so what the Trump administration to do is is trying to do, or what they're saying that they're trying to do, is balance the playing field um, between. Um, alleged victims and alleged perpetrators, and I think that's the group, the alleged perpetrators, that, that's the group that the administration felt was was being left behind, if you will. Okay. So a couple of questions. Do the Does the letter and the Q&A imply that those are now laws? It's a good question. So they're not, they're not, the law is still the same. Title IX um, of the of the education of 1972 education amendments is, is still the same, um, or as or has been amended throughout the years. Um, there is no, but there are no regulations. What it is, what what the Q and A does, um, the current Q and A does, is it provides educational institutions with the guidance as to how the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education is likely to enforce Title IX. So it, it is truly guidance now. We tend to advise our clients that that's the law that should be followed, even though it's not a law. I use the law in quotes um, because the, the guidance is what's out there. And 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 the ultimate penalty uh, for a school that is found to violate Title IX is that they could lose all of their education funding, their DOE funding, and that would basically force any school to close, whether it be you know a public school or, or a private institution. So the guidance is essentially – the law of the land. Okay. And enforced. It's enforced guidance. Correct. Okay. And then um, as far as the how the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter were, was sort of swinging towards the accuser mm -hmm. and the new Q&A kind of swinging a little bit more towards the accused, how would it work in a mainstream sexual harassment case in in an employment setting? Or is it was the Dear Colleague letter swinging really far away from how sexual harassment or sexual abuse was being handled in other settings? So I think depending on 
um, what side of the political spectrum you're on, you will get different answers. But I think the concern is that uh, under the Obama dear 2011 Dear Colleague guidance that the the definition of sexual harassment was skewing too far away from the not only the um, the definition of sexual harassment and kind of the employment context, um, but also it was skewing further away from other types of misconduct on on college campuses. Now I'm not I'm not sure those are necessarily comparable, but that that's the uh, that was kind of the position, um, and I think that in my opinion that's kind of the underlying reason why we're seeing this this change and the pendulum trying to swing back the other way to what the, what the Trump administration would say is to find that balance. Um, because the, you know, sexual harassment in, in, in a, you know, in Massachusetts, if you're, if you're going to file a sexual harassment case before the commission against discrimination, you have to prove that the harassment was severe and pervasive under the 2011 dear colleague letter. Um, uh, and, and as enforced by OCR, you didn't have to prove that severe and pervasive conduct. It really only had to be one, maybe two instances. And so there are, you know, there are courts that were trying to rein that in or at least highlighting that um, there was some sort of discrepancy and that may show that may show a discriminatory intent on the part of the educational institution um, by having different standards. So in reading and preparing, one of the more significant changes that have already been made by the administration is that education institutions will be able to choose either a lower preponderance of evidence standard or a higher clear and convincing evidence standard. So this is very confusing. It opens up a lot of questions. Um, and one of them is, are there other situations where a judicial body can choose the standard of evidence? And how would you guide a school through making that choice? So I think the one thing that we need to keep in mind with Title IX and OCR complaints is that we're not um, at the first stage. If you're, if you're filing an OCR complaint, you're not before a court, Okay. Um, and or typically the way these processes play out is that there will be a complaint filed at the school. The school will handle it under its own procedures. Um, you could the, the alleged victim or the alleged perpetrator could um, could go directly to OCR and file something. That's where this burden question comes in um, at the first stage. There are so these are administrative bodies. They're not Article Three of the Constitution courts that have you know the the, the burdens of um, you know. Uh, preponderance of the evidence in a civil beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case. So they are entitled to set up their own burdens. So the OCR guidance in 2011 was preponderance of the evidence. The fact that the schools now have a choice under the 2017 Q&A, I think that is going to lead to some confusion. It's going to lead to likely a lack of consistent application of the law. Providing schools with the choice leaves them a large opportunity to say, all right, well, for this case, we're going to do preponderance of the evidence. But for this case, which we subjectively believe is more severe, we're going to actually say this is clear and convincing standard. And clear and convincing is typically, it's understood as kind of like a 75% you're liable. You've committed some sort of unlawful conduct, whereas beyond the preponderance of the evidence standard is essentially majority, 50% plus one. We have been advised, you know, we, we've been drafting policies for years in this area, and we have always had the preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, we've been talking with our schools, walking them through the possible ramifications of changing the potential standard. My, my typical advice is not to have the or, but to actually pick one, because that, that will certainly let your policy will be more consistent. 
it depends on the school. It depends on on kind of who's the leadership at the boards of those schools. You know, I represent primarily um, elementary and um, and high schools. So you know, in the elementary level, they be they may want a slightly higher standard because these are tech, tend to be more immature students who haven't thought through their conduct. Whereas at the high school, um, perhaps you want a lower standard because you want to encourage more more complaints in the sense that you believe there there is an, a problem at your school. So it really depends on the circumstances, and there's uh, there's not one recommendation that I would give to all schools uniformly. Okay, and I mean I would think also establishing a set standard for universities might be useful because I would think universities would be up against possible persuasion if the accused is uh, the grandchild or child of a major donor or an influential alumni. I mean, I think schools can't avoid probably feeling some sense of pressure in that situation and potentially choosing an evidence standard that might lean in the favor of one or the other. Either that or the accuser is an influential alumni or... Um, it could go either way. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. And, and um, I, I, I really think that it, we're going to see the schools pick one standard. I, I, I think they open themselves up to an unnecessary amount of um, of scrutiny and, and litigation, future litigation um, at the outcome of any investigation if they don't have one standard because of that potential for selective enforcement of or use of standards. Um, what's interesting is that since the 2017 Q&A was released – I don't, there haven't been any studies done that I know of because um, it's been you know almost a year at this point. But there, are, uh, you know, press releases, news stories you'll read will show that um, many schools are are still maintaining the preponderance of evidence standard, mostly because for seven, eight years, that's what they have been putting into place. Those are the systems they know. That's what they train on, and to change the standard while it may ultimately be um, the best decision for that school, they they don't have the time or the resources maybe to to conduct, you know, to start the process over again. So it'll be interesting to see in the next few years, um, predict, depending on how the actual regulations are, are published and what, what's in them, it'll be interesting to see if schools do change their standards and, and, and the reasons why they're doing it. And I think, I think we're going to see hundreds of different reasons. Yeah. Do schools, when they decide their standards um, or what, they're, what they are following for Title IX, do they – um, put that in a written form? Is it published somewhere that people can go and see? Or is it kind of decided within their office between lawyers and then it just sits there and no right. one can actually fact check it? So the schools, schools whether it's a college or, or an elementary school, they're required to have Title IX policies, um, written policies that are easily accessible to the public, um, not just the school community. But um, So most of our schools publish their Title IX policies in both their student handbooks as well as on their websites. And that's the same if you if you were to Google any, any university. For the most part, um, you would be able to find their Title IX policy just through a Google search. Um, so in those policies, um, there are f- there are several absolute requirements. Um, one of which is you have to identify a Title IX coordinator. That is the person who is in charge of overseeing the implementation of your Title IX policy, and that person is usually the lead investigator and the recipient of complaints. Maybe not directly, but all all complaints will funnel up to that person. That person needs to be identified by name and contact information, um, so that members of the school community and I guess to the extent necessary, members of the public could contact that person. Sure. Is that uh, typically a lawyer? 
or uh, so it depends on the school. Okay. Right. Um, it, it needs to be somebody who's impartial mm-hmm. um, and does not have a necessarily a you know a role in the ultimate adjudication of the case. Um, that that's the advice I give, um, particularly with elementary schools and high schools. You know, they have limited, and and in my in my in my per- personal practice, I represent primarily charter schools, mm-hmm. and so they have limited resources, limited staff members, and so typically the. Uh, the head of school or the executive director of school will volunteer and say, well, I'll do it. That's too many hats for that person to wear. Yeah. Um, so we will usually have a an administration official or a more senior teacher who's willing to participate, um, serve on the role. We'll, we'll, we'll have that person serve, and then they will be trained, and, and they will um, you know, understand what their roles and responsibilities are. Okay. Um, the other elements of the policy that are, are mandatory are a grievance procedure process, um, that must, you know, provide adequate due process to both the victim and the alleged perpetrator. And then there must be a, no, a statement of non-discrimination, basically following Title IX and saying that, you know, the school does not condone and, and, and in fact, bars discrimination on the basis of sex. And usually it's the school's um, standard anti-discrimination statement that, that that's, in, that's inserted there. And then the policies are, are much more robust than those three sections, but those are the those are the requirements. Typically, I've never seen a policy that doesn't have it, and that's not to say that um, there isn't one out there that is the exception. The the standard of proof will be in there because it will be in that policy because if it's not, then you're arguably violating the, the, the party's due process rights because they don't know what standard they would be facing. Okay, okay. Um, another controversial feature of the the Trump administration's Q&A is um, on the appeals process that prior it was an appeal could be made by the accuser or the accused. Now it's a little confusing. It, it seems as though it's your choices are either an appeal can be made by the accused only or the accuser and the accused together. Am I correct on that or am I misunderstanding it? So I, I think you're correct, but it's nuanced. And so I think that that is another perfect example of the current administration wanting to swing the pendulum back towards the middle. There were, you know, there there have been a lot of concerns, um, whether rightly or wrongly, that this appellate process under the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, where only the um, accuser could appeal, really deprived the accused of any any due process, which which that would not happen in any other civil type of matter because. You know, both parties have appellate rights in a civil matter. So under the under the 2017 guidance, the way that the um, appellate rights work is the accused, the, the accused can appeal, or you have to make an appeal available to both oh, the, the accused or the accuser. You can't just have the appeal available to the accuser. Um, that does, so it doesn't mean that the accuser and the accused have to appeal together. Okay. They just both have to have the ability to appeal. Okay. And on one or the other could choose. They don't both have to. Exactly. To. That's my understanding. Okay. Um, I think this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. This is one of the most controversial aspects of the new um, guidance and of the newly leaked proposed regulations. And just to you know, just take a step back as far as the leaked regulations, they're not only leaked, but they're still subject to, um, as any administrative rule is, to notice and comment periods that every member of the general public can can look at the published draft proposed regulations and submit comments. And I highly anticipate that this is going to be 
months-long process. I mean, the, the government will put, a, will put a timeline on it, but they're going to receive thousands upon thousands of comments. And so no one can predict how the final regulations will um, ultimately look or how, how closely the, um, the administration will, will follow you know, comments. It depends on, on what come, what, you know, what, what's received. But this appellate issue, I think, is going to be one of the more contentious issues. Okay. And why, not to get into the politics of it, but why is it so contentious and what is the, is it a contentious issue for the schools or is it something else altogether? No, it's a great question. I, 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 the schools, the, they, they, they just want a, I I would think that they want a process that is, that complies with the law. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think the, why it's contentious is this, it's this pendulum issue. That you know, there are certain sides of the of, of the issue that will say we are providing too many opportunities. Um, you know, historically we have swept college and school sexual harassment, sexual assault under the rug. There have been too many instances where people are afraid to come out and speak, and so now we're giving more appellate rights to to accused, and um, that may that may ultimately you know, if the, if an accuser is aware that this person. The, the accused can keep appealing and appeal and they can go to federal court and that, that may that may decrease the motivation to come forward because why why would I want to go through um, this years long process and the and, and OCR investigations for example already take two to three years oh wow um, depending on the on the specific instances on average um, whereas on the other side of the spectrum which is also an understandable position you've accused me of something that could ruin my life and I truly believe I didn't do anything wrong. So why shouldn't I be granted the right to appeal this? Um, because in my opinion, schools have proven that they don't conduct these investigations. Schools are schools. They're educational institutions. They're not law enforcement. Right. You know, So there, there may have been issues, and you haven't provided me with the requisite due process. So I should, I'm entitled to these appellate rights. And there may be a middle ground, but, but this issue is so hotly contested just generally. This is a a tangible change. Okay. And therefore everybody's going to everybody who has a vested interest in the issue, they're going to, you know, fight tooth and nail to see what they can um, you know, preserve or change. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Are schools required to investigate every complaint of sexual misconduct? So that's one of the most noticeable differences between the 2011 and the 2017 guidance. Under the 2011 Dear Colleague guidance, yes, the school was required to investigate complaints that came in. And what was different from today is that it, in practice, it turned out that almost everybody at a – almost every employee at a school and sometimes even volunteers or contractors, consultants, depending on the terms of a policy, was essentially a mandatory reporter. So if you – you know, if, if a student came up to a, a teacher who – never taught the student, but, you know, let's say they were neighbors maybe, and said, you know, reported some sort of sexual harassment or unwanted conduct, that teacher had a responsibility to provide it to the um, Title IX coordinator. The teacher wasn't necessarily, the reporting teacher wasn't necessarily in a position of power with respect to Title IX, but, he had a, but that teacher had a reporting requirement. And then an investigation um, was required to, was required to follow, and depending on the nature of the complaint, what was found, the level of the investigation may, may change. Today, under the current guidance and what is, is um, in what has been leaked is that 
reports only need to be made um, where the um, school should have knowledge or has knowledge of an ele- of an alleged um, violation of Title IX, um, which is a little bit different. And um, there's the New York Times, which published this the the, the original um, leaked proposed regulations has published that the actual leaked regulations say a report doesn't need to be made, investigations don't need to be performed until the school has actual knowledge, which is a much different standard. Um, The other difference is that only in in the current proposed regulations that have leaked, it looks that only certain designated employees, likely administration, members of the administration, will have reporting requirements. So – your 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 teacher or your cafeteria worker or your maintenance worker may not have um, reporting requirements. Whereas in today's kind of a gray area because we're kind of in this in this in between zone. But under the Obama administration's guidance, every employee had the reporting requirement. Okay, so today's guidance um, would mean that if a student was harassed in some way, they'd have to know exactly who to go to. And that's kind of the gray area. My position would be in today's guidance as we sit here today. The actual knowledge standard is not in place. Okay. The actual knowledge standard is proposed in the in the leaked proposed regulations. Whether that actually becomes the regulation, again, that that that's a that's a fundamental change to how Title IX is enforced, and and it's going to be a contested issue. For I I think this probably applies for certainly colleges and universities, but even for um, elementary high schools, say an incident happens between a uh, coach and a student athlete while they're at a sporting event on behalf of the school, it's not on the school's campus, or it's between a teacher and a student while they're on some kind of field trip or something like that. The harassment takes place there. Under the Obama administration, those cases would be covered. It sounds like potentially under the new administration, um, those cases may no longer fit under the new Title IX guidelines that are possibly coming out. Can you provide clarity on that and how those should then be handled? Um, and if a student does have an issue, what is their best course of action if, if it's not complaining to the school? Right. So the examples that you gave, and this is this, this perfect example of how nuanced Title IX investigations and complaints can be. The examples that you gave all involved school activities that weren't on school campus. And that, right now, that's kind of where the distinction is, is that the leaked regulations seem to suggest that Title IX applies only to on-campus misconduct. It's unclear whether or not it applies to off-campus school activity conduct. So a, a coach and a student, if it's – let's say it's at an away game, that's a school event. That That's covered today. That will, in my opinion, would likely be covered under the proposed regulations because it's a school event, um, okay. you know, at a dance if something happens, but it's off-campus, student-on-student, whether it's off-campus, but it's at a dance where there's school personnel there. To me, that would be, I think, uh, that would be on-campus. Now, the issue is w- what's going to happen under the new regulations where it's student-on-student or um, teacher-student-employee-student uh, misconduct or uh, unwanted conduct, sexual harassment but it's off campus or it's during the summer. I think mean, the current leaked regulations would say that's not covered by Title IX. That's going to leave thousands of questions. And while nothing, I, I haven't seen anything published 
that, that has said this, my interpretation would be that the current administration would say that's a law enforcement um, issue that's off of our campus, that's outside of our purview. You have every right to go to the local police agency. They are the ones who are better equipped to investigate these those types of issues. Now, the problem is that the purpose of Title IX is to bar um, discrimination based on, on the basis of sex when it affects, when it fundamentally affects a student's access to their education. So if, if a student is sexually harassed um, or sexually assaulted off campus or during the summer, but then they come to school and they can't perform well at school or they, you know, they, they're starting to disassociate themselves from their friends and, you know, they're, they're not participating in school programs anymore. Well, arguably that off-campus conduct has fundamentally impacted their ability to access their education. The proposed league regulations may or may not cover that, and, and that, that's going to fundamentally change how Title IX is enforced. Okay. I know, and this is another very specific situation, but I think once you get in the college setting, a lot of students have mentors, and their mentors are, are professors or other school leaders, and they're invited out for social events, um, and that would be another time where you could see something like that happening. Um, and I would think the school would want to be involved in some kind of misconduct between their employees and their students, um, whether it was on or off campus. But yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's fair. I think there's an interplay uh, between um, Title IX, and this is this is specific and exclusive to college campuses um, and postgraduate programs. Um, interplay between Title IX and and what's called the Cleary Act. Um, and I will I will admit that my practice I, I don't focus on the Cleary Act, but schools I do know that schools, universities, colleges. They have different obligations um, and more obligations under the Clery Act, and and perhaps these issues, these types of issues, may be covered under the under the Clery Act as well. And you know, I'm a, I, I can't give a legal opinion as to that because it's not my practice area. But but you know, schools are you know they're well aware of their obligations under both of those acts. Okay, okay. Can you foresee that if the new guidance comes into effect, do you? Th- think that it will expose schools to greater legal risk? Will it reduce legal risk? And also that goes towards legal expense. Do you think it's going to increase schools' legal expenses, um, cause the need for hiring more staff, or does this alleviate some of that for the school? I don't think that the new regulations are going, whatever they say in their final form, I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to fundamentally alter the amount and the cost and the expenses related to investigations and, and litigation. I think this this issue on you know, college campuses, high schools, elementary schools, it's it's prevalent. Sadly, it's prevalent, and and there are going to be complaints all the time. I think what this may, what the new regulations may do, at least in the in the near term, you may see an increase in. Claims, and I think we're starting to see this a little bit. I'm seeing it a little bit in my practice as well. You're, you're going to see an increase in claims asserted by alleged perpetrators saying that their Title IX rights were violated. Now, there's going to be an issue about retroactivity and mm-hmm. um, as to you know when the incident happened and which guidance applied at which time. But presently, there are um, an increased number of these types of suits filed um, in federal court or administrative agency. Um, in the DOE, the OCR, where 
the alleged perpetrators are saying that uh, my due process rights were violated and I wasn't given a fair opportunity to um, defend myself. And that I think that's what these um, the proposed regulations are trying to fix. But until um, until that happens, I think we're going to see you'll see an increased um, number of complaints and, and possibly suits from from that angle. Okay, and um, the new Q and A also. Uh, treats cases of sexual harassment um, or the evaluation of those cases to be the same as any act of misconduct, such as cheating, hazing, plagiarism. Um, does that expose schools to any kind of legal consequence? Because I, I think a case of sexual harassment or abuse is very different than plagiarism, for example. Um, can, a com- can somebody appeal based on that right. understanding? In the 2017 guidance, the Q&A, that issue is, is interestingly cited in a footnote, and it, and it relies heavily on a, a federal case in the District of Massachusetts, which addressed this issue of different burdens of proof in um, sexual uh, harassment, sexual assault cases, Title IX cases, versus what the court said was other misconduct. Now, the court never defined what misconduct was. And so my opinion on this is that I'm not sure the court really meant that plagiarism and sexual harassment are subject to the same burdens of proof. Like, yes, they're both misconduct, but they're very different. Do I think the current guidance is going to lead to possibly more litigation on this on this particular issue? Yes, I do. I think it's going to be going to be very difficult for a school to say that this is the same sexual harassment uh, misconduct is the same as minor misconduct. So schools are going to have to define what misconduct is. They're probably going to have to have different levels of misconduct. Many of these schools probably all already have this, but they're going to have to update their policies to to address this new issue. And until there's some sort of closure in, at each institution, there I think there will be more complaints and, and litigation concerning this because, um, and also from a, a public relations per- perception, particularly in today's environment, if a school is saying that plagiarism is as serious as sexual harassment or sexual assault that may not fly in certain you know in certain circumstances yeah i would imagine not (laughs) greg thank you for talking today and thank you to our listeners for more information about changes in the laws around title nine please check out the news section of our website for our client alerts and blogs and for more information about greg or to contact him his bio can also be found on our website at www.bglaw.com As always, you can find other Legal Lowdown podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on our website under the podcasts in the news section. Thank you again. Thank you very much. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, 
including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.